0: Matthew chapter 1, and we'll read from verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise when, as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did, as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife. And you were not till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, the story of the Savior's birth is so familiar to most of us that sometimes I fear it's easy to take it for granted, and we're all guilty of that. It takes a quiet, still, reflective, contemplative heart to let the actual reality of what took place just over 2,000 years ago draw the soul out in adoring wonder of how the eternal, infinite, unchangeable God stepped through the veil that hanged or hung between time and eternity into history and appeared in the fashion and in the likeness of a man. Worship, not words, is the adequate response to such a truth. Now here in Matthew's Gospel, we have an account of the life of Christ from the perspective of showing us that Christ is King. Fifty-eight times in this book, the word kingdom is used, and twenty times the word king is used. This is the theme of this gospel record, and this is conveyed to us in various ways and various places. John the Baptist's message was, Repent thee, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And when the Lord Jesus himself started preaching, his message consisted of the same thing. Matthew writes in a manner to show his readers that Christ fulfilled the many prophecies of the Old Testament that Jesus Christ is the King that God had promised to His people for centuries and centuries. One of the most notable prophecies concerning kingship fulfilled by the Savior is that of Zechariah chapter 9 and the verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy King cometh unto thee. He is just. And having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. And there was great anticipation among Jewish people who were looking for the arrival of their king. And Jewish women themselves, they were filled and lived with the hope that they would be the one who would give birth to God's promised king, the Messiah. Now, in Matthew chapter 1 and 2, we have the record of the birth and the early days of the Lord Jesus. Joseph, a carpenter, well, you need me not to tell you, you know it so well, but I'm going to do it anyway. Joseph, a carpenter, carpenter from Nazareth, he was betrothed to a young lady called Mary. What we might call an engagement, but in Jewish culture, it was more binding, legally, They were, as we might say, viewed as good as married, although they had never lived together, and although they had never consummated that relationship with physical relations. We read that Mary was with child, and this no doubt was troubling to Joseph, who is described by the Holy Spirit as a just man. He had been upright in his dealings with this young lady. He had not and never sullied her purity by any improper conduct. And I'm sure his thoughts were concerning Mary was maybe something with respect to her unfaithfulness. It must have entered his mind. There could be no other explanation. So he thought. It was because of this, Joseph, we read, was intent on putting Mary away with a bill of divorcement. And he wanted to do it quietly and discreetly to spare Mary's embarrassment. But while he was running these things over in his mind, the Lord sent an angel unto him with a wonderful message. He was not to fear. He was to take Mary to be his wife, for the child she was carrying was conceived of the Holy Ghost. This was not a case of unfaithfulness on the part of Mary. Rather, this was a case of faithfulness on the part of God, to his covenant engagement, to send a deliverer. This was to be no ordinary child. This was the promised king. The heavenly messenger not only dismisses the fears of Joseph, but also informs and instructs him concerning this child who would be born a king. Verse 21, And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save His people from their sins. Now here's a verse that adorns many a Christmas card. And this evening I want to consider three things from this most familiar verse under the heading, The Promised King. Now the first thing I want us to notice from this verse is the king's person. The king's person, and we see this in the opening words of this well-known verse, And she shall bring forth a son... And thou shalt call his name Jesus. Now the verse does not say that Mary shall bring, uh, now the verse does say that Mary shall bring forth a son. And we have to notice how carefully the Holy Ghost records this. The angel does not say to Joseph, your son, but a son. In verse 25, we read of her firstborn son, not their firstborn son. And if we go back and take time to read verse 16, in this chapter, in the genealogy of Christ, we find there that the Holy Ghost is careful to note that Jesus was born of Mary and not begotten of Joseph, as every other male child in that genealogy was described. Here we have the one who is the seed of the woman, the one promised in the immediate aftermath of Adam and Eve's transgression. This child, as Matthew goes on to explain in verses 23, 22 and 23, was the one foretold in Isaiah 7:14, hundreds of years before the sign, the sign from the Lord, the one conceived of a virgin, the one who would be Emmanuel, God with us. And in this we have a revelation of the king's person. He is God manifest in the flesh, the God-man. Now it has to be said, it was touched on this morning, always a danger, think this man's going to take what you're going to preach tonight. But there is a kingship that belongs to the Son of God by reason of His deity, His divine essence. He is sovereign over all things, the universe, angelic beings, all creatures and every man, by the very reason that he himself is God. But beyond that, there is a kinship which belongs to Christ as mediator, with which he has been invested. And we notice that especially in the second chapter of Matthew when the wise men made reference to Herod, and they came to him and said, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen a star in the east and are come to worship him. There is a special, there is a spiritual kingdom over which Christ exclusively reigns and executes his office as a king for the salvation of his people. And for this reason, the gospel which is all about the Lord Jesus Christ, is called and is described the gospel of the kingdom, a description which would make no sense whatsoever if Christ were not a king. Many, many times in the Old Testament, we read off references to the fact of a promised king who would come and sit upon the throne of David his father and reign forever and ever. And that's why we have the genealogies of both Mary and Joseph recorded. That's not incidental detail. But Christ, according to the flesh, he came from the house and the kingly line of David. But coming back to the one who is the king, the one whom our catechism describes as God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. What a king to have over the kingdom of grace. One who has both power and authority to govern all things and to bring all things into subjection unto himself. One who is God, but also one who can identify, who can sympathize, who can succor, who can stand as a substitute for those who would be subjects of his everlasting kingdom. He is man. How vital it was for the Son of God to become man in order to establish and to bring about and to order the kingdom of God. We read there in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6 about the government and the kingdom being upon Him. To order it and to establish it with what? With justice and judgment. And how did He order? How did He establish His kingdom? By the judgment of and the justice that was meted out upon him at the cross of Calvary. And that could only happen. The kingdom could only be ordered and established, this everlasting kingdom, of which there are many subjects if Christ became man. And that was possible by the incarnation through the virgin birth. She shall bring forth a son. It does not say, as it was said to Zacharias, the wife of, uh, or sorry, uh, Zacharias of his wife to Elizabeth, where it says there in Luke 1 verse 13, She shall bear thee a son. No, Mary, it was said, she shall bring forth a son. A child formed within her. A son there, the son of God. And the child formed within her from her substance of her womb by the power and the operation of the Holy Ghost as Gabriel informed her. And by this unique conception and through this unique birth, this child would be truly and fully man, at the same time perfect and pure man, preserved from the original corruption of sin. How vital to establish a kingdom and went into which many subjects would be gathered, that Christ, that the Son of God, became man. And as a man, he was born, and he lived under the law of God. And the obligation lay upon him, as it lies upon all men, to be subject to that law, which ironically he himself given. Furthermore, he was under the threatened penalty of the law, should he break it. As a man, he understood what it was, and he learned by experience all the temptations and the miseries of this life. And by that and through that, he can enter into our grief. He can succor those who themselves find themselves under such conditions as a man. Listen, as a man, and here's a great mystery, as a man he worshipped God, he obeyed God, he served God, he loved God, he prayed to God, he had faith in God with all his heart, his soul, his mind, and his strength. All that was required of man, that he did. Christ did it perfectly. He was impeccable in his humanity, fulfilled all righteousness. He conformed to the standard of God, something that you and I could never do. The first man, Adam, fell from the perfection by which God created him. And yet the second man, the Lord from heaven, he measured up. And so he obtained for those who would be saved, those who would be subjects of his kingdom, a righteousness with which God would be pleased if you turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 23. Jeremiah chapter 23, and it's interesting that in the context of a justifying righteousness, the prophet Jeremiah says these words. Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. And listen how it relates to the kingship or Christ the King. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch. There's one springing up from his lineage. And a king shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. And in his days Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely. And this is his name whereby he shall be called. Listen, here it is, the Lord... Our righteousness. This child, this king that we're reading about here in Matthew chapter 1 was to be called Jesus. What a name. A name above all names. You know, the first child born into this world was called by a name which expressed the fond hope of his mother Eve she exclaimed, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And so she called him Cain, a name which means acquired or possession. And it strongly suggested that Eve thought him to be the promised one. And yet the infamy of his wicked and evil deed bitterly put to flight any hope that Eve might have had that he was to be the savior. But this child, born of Mary, the promised one, was, was the Savior of man, and is the Savior of man. And His name is Jesus. This name, as many of you are aware, it is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew name Joshua. The name which means Jehovah saves or Jehovah is salvation. And that sacred name, Jehovah, is a name by which God made Himself known unto Moses as He came to keep His promise to deliver His people from bondage. And as the Lord Jesus, as He walked around Nazareth, because this is a name that He would have been known in His community, and every time that name Jesus was called, the people of His day would have understood that that name means The Lord is salvation. Here's a revelation of the king's person. The one promised by God. And this leads us into a second point this evening. The king's purpose. There's the king's person, but here we have the king's purpose. Now, the king's speech, it takes place at the state opening of Parliament. And it sets forth the program of legislation that the government intend to pursue in a forthcoming parliamentary session. It outlines the purpose and the intent of the government. Now, why did the Son of God become man and be born of a virgin? Why such a stoop from the heights of glory to the depths of the hidden parts of this world, the womb of the virgin? Well, Emily Elliot, she answers that in her carol, in her hymn. Thou didst leave thy throne, and I keenly crown, when thou camest to earth for me. There's the purpose. There's the reason. For me, for sinners. That's why Christ came. And why was it he came for sinners? Well, we'll told in John 3. We're told that God sent not a Son into the world to condemn the world. Because the world of sinners were already condemned by their transgression, but we're told that He came. He was not sent to condemn the world, but the world through Him might be saved. And that's what we have here in verse 21. Matthew 1. She shall bring forth a Son, and I shall call His name Jesus, for He shall save. Son of God came into this world. Was born as a babe with a definite purpose in view. He came with the intention to save. And the Lord Jesus Himself makes that known. Luke 19, verse 10. For the Son of Man is come. What's his purpose? What's an intention? To seek and to save that which was lost. And verse 21 speaks of the saving purpose and intention with certainty. He shall see. There are no ambiguities in this. There's no uncertainties. Christ came, not that a people could be saved. Not that a people may be saved. Not that a people might be saved. you take all those together, could be, maybe, might be, And what does that lead to the conclusion? Well, it leads to the conclusion that possibly no one could have been saved and that the work that Christ did was all in vain. But no, no. We read here that He shall save. He shall. He came in order that sinners would be saved. Understand this sinner. Get a grasp of this. Anchor your soul upon the assurance of that word shall, in that verse, shall see. Now, in the Greek, the word order, here it is emphatic to emphasize to us, this was the king's purpose. And by him alone salvation is to be found. We could read it like this, for it is he who shall see. For it is He who shall see. What do we read there in Acts chapter 4 verse 12? Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Christ did not come to be a moral instructor. He didn't come to be a lifestyle guru. He didn't come to be an example to mankind. Though it has to be said there's no one There is no one who taught like Him, for He taught as one that had authority and not as the scribes. There is no one who lived like Him. He was a perfect example of what it was to be a man. There is none as holy as He. He went about doing good. He had compassion and love to the poor and the destitute and the diseased and the suffering and the outcast. There's no one that lived like Christ, but that's not why He came to be an instructor, to be a lifestyle guru, to be an example. No, He came to see It's been quoted many times. I'll quote it again. If our greatest need had been information, God would have sent an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent economists. But our greatest need was forgiveness. And so God sent a Savior. A Savior. Yes, all by nature are doomed to die. So says God's holy word. Sinner, you're under condemnation. Do you know that? You're under wrath. You might not feel that. You might not sense that. Well, that's what the Word of God declares. And you need to be saved. Saved not only from eternal ruin, but saved from your sins. You see, if it were possible for man to save himself, if it was conceivable that man could work out his own salvation, Christ would not have been conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. It would have been preposterous to suggest that the Father sent His Son to all the suffering and all the shame that He knew would befall His own Son ever would have cut across the very nature of a loving, of a gracious, of a just God if Christ did not need to be born of the virgin. But there was no other way. Jesus alone is the Savior of men and it is to him you must fly. He, for it is he who shall see. It's not to the church. It's not to a creed. It's not to a ceremony. It's to Christ. If you want to be saved, have you done that? Have you called upon the Lord for salvation? Young child in here, little one. For it is He who shall save you. Not your parents, not the preacher, it's not the catechism. It's good to have Christian parents, good to have a faithful preacher, it's good to have a sound catechism and confession. But it's to Christ you must go, and He will save you. Now, this word save, which we have in verse 21. It's a word that has various meanings to it, and they're all accomplished by and through the work of Christ. It can mean to rescue, to be rescued. And that implies what? Danger. Danger. Sinner, do you realize? The precipice of hell that lies before you. And the wrath of God which hangs above you. And yet in Christ there is safety. In Him there's a refuge, for the wrath of God was poured out upon Him. And He went into the darkness of abandonment in order to bring sinners to the light of glory. This word saved, or save, it also means to be delivered. And that is a meaning that implies detainment. And I'll ask another question. Do you realize that you're under the bondage of sin? Do you understand that? Do you think that you're free to do whatsoever you please? Well, in a sense, that's true. For what pleases you is sin. And you do those things to which your heart inclines, which is away from God, towards self, towards sin. And so, in a sense, you're you're not free. You try to do those things that please God, but you feel You are as a prisoner kept by a strong man, and yet in Christ there is liberty. He came to set sinners free, and whom the Son sets free, they shall be free indeed. Crushed the head of the devil at Calvary. He is the one who is stronger than the strong man. Satan was bound by Christ's death and resurrection, and has been rendered powerless to hold on to sinners. Christ key, in order that new life would be given, that a new heart would be imparted, that you truly would be free, free to do those things that please God by the enabling power of the Spirit of God. This word saved, it also means to make whole. And that's a meaning that implies disease. The corruption of sin that courses through your being, polluting and defiling every faculty that you possess. Your thoughts, your words, your actions is all tinged, all infected with sin. A spiritual condition which if not dealt with, it leads to death, eternal death, separation from God. And yet Christ came. And His gospel is the healing balm. And His blood is the cleansing agent that rids you of the malady of your sin and makes you whole and complete in Him. This word save, it also means to preserve. And that's a meaning that implies what? Destruction. Destruction when used in the New Testament concerning the punishment of the unsaved does not mean annihilation, but rather eternal ruination. This is what you need to be saved from. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Have you been saved? Rescued from danger? Delivered from detainment? Made whole from disease, preserved from destruction, you can only say you're saved if you've repented of sin and trusted in Jesus Christ, for it is He. It is He who shall save. You see, all these things, danger, detainment, disease, death, destruction are the consequent of sin. And what the curse brought into this world and upon mankind. And you need to be saved. You need to be saved from the curse in order. In order to be in God's kingdom. And it was for that reason that King Jesus was crowned with thorns, A symbol of the curse. It was for that reason He went to the tree. And He bore in His body our sins to the tree that He might remove sin from us. As far as the east is from the west, it is the Lamb who takes it away. It's the Lamb who carries it out of the way. If you are to be saved, it is to Christ you must come. That's his purpose. He came to see. Him. But finally this evening, we have noticed the king's person, the king's purpose, but finally the king's people. The king's people. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sin. Yes, the king came with a purpose in mind. But he also came with a people in his heart. What a wonderful thought that is, child of God. He came with a purpose in mind. And he set his face to go to a flint, or as a flint to go to Jerusalem. He was determined to do it. For the purpose in view, to see. But he came with a people in his heart. He loves sinners. And that's why He came to save sinners. And the order is important. It wasn't that He saved sinners and, and then only began to love them. No, that's not the case. For unto the Son, before the foundation of this world, was given a people. Given not because of any foresight of good in them, or what they would do, or how they would choose concerning Jesus Christ. No, none of those things, but rather by free and sovereign grace. God's love was set upon a particular people whom Christ would save. Oh, there's those who would stumble over this glorious doctrine of election God's choice. But listen, it magnifies the grace of God, and it highlights the depravity of man. Sinner, do you not halt or stumble over this wonderful revealed truth that God as a people, rather, let it encourage you to come to Christ for salvation. Salvation which is full and free and complete and certain. For those whom the Father has given to the Son, they shall come to Him him or her that cometh to Christ, he will in no wise cast out. He will receive you. Your coming is an evidence that God is drawing you. and whom the Father loves, he will draw to the Son. Delay no longer, but come to Christ at once. You see, the Lord, if you do that, the Lord will deliver you from the power of darkness. And He will translate you. And that's a word that can mean to carry over one land border, one country's border to another. He will translate you. He will carry you. He will bring you into the kingdom, the kingdom of God's your Son. Do you know there's two kingdoms in this world? It's the kingdom of darkness over which the prince of this world rules and reigns. And let me tell you, he has absolutely no concern. He has no love for the subjects in that kingdom, over which he has dominion. But rather, his only intent is to bring them down to eternal perdition and to stop them glorifying God, which is their chief end. He has no love for the subjects in His kingdom, but there is another kingdom. The kingdom of grace, kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, and over that kingdom Christ reigns. One who is described by God Himself in Psalm 2 as my King, my Anointed, my Chosen, my Appointed One, one who is set upon the holy hill of Zion. Oh, what love he has for the citizens in that kingdom. He died for his subjects. He died that they might be brought out from under the power of darkness and into the kingdom of everlasting light. We're told, That Christ, He is the King, He's ruling, He's reigning. That all power is given unto Him. And He is putting down all rule and all authority and power of His enemies under His feet. And then when the last subject, the very last one for whom He has died, is brought into His kingdom. We read, the end will come. And He will deliver up that kingdom to the Father. All those who were given to Him in the covenant of redemption and for whom He governed and ordered all things as king to the saving off their soul, He will present that kingdom faultless before His Father with exceeding great joy. And the king who now rules in the hearts of men will rule in the midst of His people in a new heaven and a new earth. I challenge you tonight as I conclude, are you in the kingdom of God? Entrance is only by the new birth. Are you one of the king's people? Are you a heavenly royalist? Are you still a rebel? We know all about that in our country. Royalists, loyalists, or rebels? Are you one of the king's people? See, in chapter 2, we read of wise men who came from the east. It was a couple of years later. And they came to worship the king. And that's what you must do, sinner. You must bow before him. You must kiss the Son, lest he be angry with you. And take the words of that hymn, King of my life. I crown thee now, thine shall the glory be. Matthew is the gospel of Christ the King. The book begins with the King in a trough And it end, With the king upon the throne. There he was. Born of the virgin. Laid in a manger. But you come to the end of Matthew's gospel 28. And what do we read? All power. Is given unto me in heaven and on earth. Yes the one who is so low. Is now exalted high. The king's person the king's purpose, the king's people. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. May the Lord fulfill his purpose in you tonight, that you would hear us call, that you would come He invites you still. He's striven many a year with you. Come to the King. Bow at His footstool. And He will save you for time and for eternity. Let's bow in prayer. God's people, let's be very sensitive around this time. Pray that the meeting still continues. That the Spirit will strive. And that God would speak. Our eternal God and loving Father. We know, o God, from Scripture, that Christ came to do a work. And we also know that He accomplished the work. As He cried, it's finished. Now we live in the age of the application of the work of redemption. Nor there are a people given unto Christ to whom the gospel must be preached, to whom faith and repentance must be given. That is thy work. It is the work of our God. And Lord, I pray that you will speak to those who are gathered here this evening, the youngest child, to the oldest individual who sat for many a year, and yet they're not saved. Still in danger, still detained, still with spiritual disease, heading towards eternal destruction. O oh, Father, I pray that Thou would have mercy upon such, and Thou would save them this night. For well, we pray that You would speak all for Thy people. May they be blessed to know that they are in the kingdom of God that there is a great king who rules and reigns, who loves them, and who has a care for their soul. Now I pray that the grace of the Lord Jesus, and the love of God, and the fellowship communion of the blessed spirit, would be the portion of thy people this night and forevermore. Speak on, we pray. Fill the inquiry room with an anxious soul, Bring glory to Christ, for this we asked in the Savior's precious and his worthy name. Amen.